Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, everyone wants to be healthier, which starts with the food we choose to put in our bodies, what we can learn from the smart habits of how healthy people eat, with Kristen Cofield, founder of The Culinary Cure. Also this morning, ready to start on your spring and summer reading list, author N.L. Holmes is back with another novel of ancient historical fiction in her Empire series, The Sun at Twilight. And we have recipes for an easy Easter dinner complete with chocolate pie for dessert this week. A collection from Kyra's Kitchen. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Friday, April 2nd, 2021. Today is International Fact-Checking Day, which I thought was kind of interesting. International Fact-Checking Day. Kind of interesting because, of course, fact-checking has become so political these days, and it really shouldn't be. I mean, you know, fact-checking is what it is. Uh, it's not a—it uh, it shouldn't be, anyway, uh, a referendum on one's opinions. What's the old saying? You're entitled to your own opinion. You're not entitled to your own facts. Um, fact-checking day should be just that. Uh, are people's opinions based on fact? Uh, so International Fact-Checking Day. Uh, big salute, actually, to those who do fact-checking and do it well uh, without a political agenda. But it has uh, certainly been a hot-button issue over the past uh, couple of years. National Ferret Day today. National Love Your Produce Manager Day. <laughs> Love your produce manager day today. National peanut butter and jelly day. National walk to work day. I did that today. I walked to work. I rolled out of bed and I walked into the home studio here and that was my walk to work. <laughs> That's right. We're in the bunker this morning. Uh, student government day. It is world autism awareness day. And of course, it is good Friday today as well so so did you did you uh, fall for anything yesterday yesterday april fool's day uh march 32nd <laughs> on the calendar there were a lot of uh of really good pranks that were pulled uh for april fool's day this year um let me see here green giant came up with the idea of cauliflower-flavored peeps. <laughs> that was their big promotion. They posted that on uh, social media, the idea of cauliflower-flavored peeps from Green Giant. Um, Bush Beer uh, jokingly tweeted the release of Bush Ranch salad dressing. <laughs> Bud Light actually uh, had a unique reaction a surprising reaction. And this is the thing. Sometimes uh, April Fool's jokes backfire. Bud Light uh, was surprised at the reaction to their April Fool's gag. The beer company took to Twitter to unveil Bud Light seltzer, uh, a special Bud Light seltzer flavor anchovy pizza. <laughs> uh, the flavor, of course, a prank in celebration of April Fool's Day. But... Uh, they said later it surprised them and actually kind of frightened them how many people were looking forward to buying some of the Bud Light anchovy pizza seltzer. 
<laughs> I have a feeling that people had to be getting in on the joke, pulling their own April Fool's jokes in response. Because would anyone in their right mind want Bud Light anchovy pizza seltzer? <clears throat> I think not. And But there was one that I saw yesterday that I thought was really awesome. It was uh, from Element, uh, which is the uh, company they make uh, TVs and other electronics gadgets. And they're not real high-end gadgets. Element are, are kind of the, the low-end, cheap electronics, cheap TVs, and, and so on. But they tweeted the introduction of a new black-and-white console TV, <laughs> complete with rabbit ears for the antenna, rabbit ear antennas, tinfoil not included to uh, wrap your uh, rabbit ears and you know how you used to do back in the day wrap your rabbit ears and tinfoil to to pull in the uh, the channels uh, over the air uh but it was surprising to me as i i, I saw that uh, it was kind of a mid-century modern you know like 50s old 50s tv set that they were uh introducing and the response I thought was really cool. The number of people who said that they would be interested in buying one of those, uh, a, a modern high definition television in one of those fifties TV console frames. As a matter of fact, uh, I saw a couple of people who, uh, had actually done that, had actually built one, uh, built a console for their high definition TV to sit inside. It was really cool. So anyway, just, uh, some of the, uh, April Fool's Day gags yesterday. Uh, here's our daily pandemic story. It seems like every day we've got to have one of those to start off your morning. Uh, this is kind of interesting. Due to the pandemic, many of us have been spending the majority of our time at home uh, for over a year, and it has definitely changed our shopping habits. Uh, this is uh, data from the Port of New York and New Jersey uh, said that they shattered records for some of the stuff that they saw come into the ports. People bought new furniture, espresso machines, and expensive European wines, and all the purchases could be seen in the surge of household cargo that shattered records at the Port of New York and New Jersey. Network of docks and terminals and open storage areas moved over 755,400 standard cargo containers in October alone. Let me repeat that. 755,400 cargo containers in October alone is what they moved through their ports. It's the busiest month in the history of the port, which has handled cargo containers since the 1960s. In fact, this port had cargo volumes up to 23% higher uh, each month from August through December of last year compared to the same months in 2019. So, again, it just shows how much we were shopping while we were bored during the pandemic. Uh, even in January, cargo volume rose 17% compared to the previous year, and in February it went up 7%, a new high for that month. But all this means the port had to extend its operating hours to nights and weekends, and that various businesses have been overwhelmed with demand. For example, LG Electronics reports a double-digit increase in the sales of refrigerators, stoves, dishwashers, washing machines, and dryers 
that ship from their factories in Asia. So we were we were shopping because we were bored. We didn't have anything else to do. And, uh, you know, we've talked in the past about the uh, number of businesses that did just fine during the pandemic. Some businesses were devastated because of the effects of the pandemic. Others did just fine. Those port workers, they did just fine. We're doing just fine. This is kind of interesting. Among the first things you need to know this morning, the most buzzworthy news stories, University of Texas researchers have found that middle-aged and older Americans scored higher on cognitive tests and were less likely to report memory loss after getting into the habit of walking. So, you know, go out for a walk. It is good for you. Not only is it good exercise, also helps your memory. I'm sorry, what was I saying? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh, the uh, participants in the study were uh, found to have better blood flow in the brain, which scientists believe helps keep brain cells fed with a steady stream of oxygen and nutrients and prevents uh, deterioration of uh, brain cells. Ultimately, the results suggest that short but consistent and frequent aerobic exercise may help fight the effects of brain aging and in turn reduce the risk of dementia. So, pretty cool. However, don't think that it will necessarily help you stay in shape because scientists in the UK, this is a separate study, scientists in the UK have found that when people had an exercise session planned, they tend to overeat the night before. <laughs> So let's say you're planning on getting up and going to the gym in the morning or taking a morning walk before work, knowing that subconsciously you actually eat more by as much as 10% more the night before than what you normally would. They say this is potentially risky for our bodies as it can lead to what's known as positive energy balance, where our energy expenditure is outweighed by our energy intake. And we could actually put on weight. So if you are exercising and, you know, doing all of those things, thinking, hey, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to get in shape. I'm going to lose some weight and I can never seem to, to take the weight off. Maybe this is what's happening to you. Maybe subconsciously you're actually eating more before your workout, not realizing that's what you uh, are doing. Uh, it is thought that this behavior could be explained by an unconscious belief that exercise can compensate for more calories than it actually burns. So the lead, stutter, uh, lead author of the study says, if you are someone who uses exercise as a means for weight loss, then you may need to also be aware of your food intake and portion size, particularly in the period right before you exercise. So, hang on. Kind of interesting stuff there. Uh, some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Friday morning started. WFIM News, I'm John Marshall. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast calling for sunny skies today and a high of 45. Mostly clear tonight with a low dropping to 27. Findlay Mayor Christina Murren received the COVID vaccine yesterday at Hancock Public Health. She is encouraging everyone eligible to do the same. You know what, it went very smooth. I barely felt it. Um, Karen, who administered the vaccine, did a fantastic job. And um, our team here at Hancock Public Health has, has a very smooth process. So it was extremely efficient. 
The mayor received the Moderna vaccine and will be notified in about four weeks when she has to return for the second dose. Get details about the weekly vaccine clinics offered by Hancock Public Health and Blanchard Valley Health System on our website. The Ohio General Assembly is considering a bill that would forbid the state from requiring so-called vaccine passports and prevent the state from taking part in such a document's production. Private companies across the country are considering whether or not to require proof of vaccination before allowing admission to events like cruises or concerts, leading some states to develop digital applications that would serve as proof. The bill sponsored by Republican Representative Al Catrona would not prevent private businesses from requiring proof of vaccination, but would make it illegal for the state to get involved. Daniel Barnett, ONN News. Governor DeWine has signed the state transportation budget that will invest $8.3 billion into the state's transportation systems. The bill features $2.6 billion for state-maintained roadway improvements and $2.4 billion for improvements at the local level. The bill also requires completion of in-person or online classes for driver's licenses before beginning behind-the-wheel instruction. Ohio Treasurer Robert Sprague of Findlay has received the Small Business Advocate of the Year Award from the Greater Cleveland Partnerships Council of Small Enterprises. Sprague earned the award for his work to allocate a significant portion of the state's remaining federal CARES Act dollars for the creation of small business grants. More news online anytime at WFIN.com. I'm John Marshall with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Well, you know, if you are a regular listener to Dave Ramsey's personal finance show here on WFIN, or if you've read any of his books, you know, one of the sayings that he is fond of is that if you want to be rich, find out what rich people do and do that. Well, the same can be said of people who are healthy. Find out what their habits are and emulate those and you will probably be healthy too. That is kind of the principle behind the new book by Kristen Cofield, founder of The Culinary Cure. It is called How Healthy People Eat. Kristen, first of all, thanks for joining us this morning. You say this is the single most powerful factor in determining one's health, how healthy people eat. That is absolutely right, Chris. People uh, underestimate the power on the end of their forks. And what's happened is, is that mindless eating has become the enemy of mindful health. And we find now in a situation in a global pandemic where people are really looking at their habits and what they're doing and what they can be doing to build that resilient wellness that we all want to have. Because honestly, you don't want to get the COVID uh, 19 virus, but if you do, you want to have a good outcome. And a lot of that is determined by your current state of wellness. And I, I think we're all guilty of that on, on some level. You're talking about the uh, mindless eating, and I know I'm, I'm guilty of it. A lot of people are. And it's interesting when you talk about how healthy people eat, it's really about everything that goes into the process, how they shop, how, uh, what they buy, how they prepare their food, the whole thing. And I don't want people to think that this is complicated or hard or expensive. It's actually very simple. And so many of the principles go back to, uh, you know, take it back a couple of generations. The way our great-grandparents is really the way we should be eating. 
So when we go to the grocery store, every time we decide to make a purchase, we have to look at that item and, and ask ourselves, would my great-grandparents be able to identify this as food? Mm. Because our food has changed so much with industrialized farming and processing and manufacturing of food. What's happened is, is many of our foods have become less nutritious and we've taken out those important things like fiber and healthy fats and we've replaced them with refined carbohydrates and added sugar and sodium and we've made these foods addictively delicious but they're just not good for us so what we need to keep in mind is that when we buy food what we're actually paying for are nutrients that's where the value is so when you start to think of calories in terms of those calories are nutrients, the nutrients in a bagel are different than the nutrients in an apple. So when you're at the store and you're shopping and you want to make sure you're getting the most value for your money, you want to be thinking nutrients. Am I getting micronutrients and macronutrients? And, you know, is this going to be something that's filled with nutrition or is it empty calories? Now, one of the interesting things you point out, uh, we are always taught to read the food labels, the products we buy to find out those things that you talk about. But you say that won't always get you there. Why? This is really complicated for most people, but the food label has got a 20% allowable margin of error in both ways. So you can imagine how complicated this is for somebody like a diabetic who's really trying to manage their sugar intake. There's a potential for 20% margin of error. So we should really be buying less food with labels and more foods that don't have labels. So, well, that, you know, fruits and vegetables don't need labels. Well, that's that's what I was going to say. So if we can't trust the label, then what? How are we supposed to know? Right. And that goes back to shopping like our great-grandparents and eating more whole foods. And when we say whole foods, we're talking about foods that are as close to their original form as possible, meaning foods that haven't been processed. So steel-cut oats are going to be better for you than instant oats. Um, apples are going to be better for you than applesauce or apple juice. So be thinking more simple foods. And, and this is like a light bulb going off for people. It's not expensive or complicated or hard to cook delicious, nutritious meals. Once we get away from added sugar and artificial ingredients and added sodium, I've got 200 recipes at theculinarycure.com to help inspire people to kind of take back control of what's on the end of their fork and make food intentional. You know, use now, food as a fuel. Now, I, I, I want to bring this up. I uh, have to ask uh, among the highlights uh, of, of the book, one of the things that kind of stood out to me, and this may seem uh, kind of random, but the reason why uh, I want to ask you about this, it says uh, one of your tips, don't drink liquids with your meals because washing food down with liquids can dilute the digestive enzymes. Now, when I saw that, to me, that sounds like one of those things that 
okay, it kind of sounds logical, but I wonder if it is scientifically dubious. Are there any actual studies to back that up? Absolutely. Um, There's a lot of information about the digestive process and how we can make that better. But what, where people get into trouble is, well, first of all, most people are walking around partially dehydrated. So that makes it hard for the body to know if it's thirsty or hungry. And if you're even a little bit dehydrated, it can affect your ability to make good decisions, which can lead to poor food choices and overeating. And so if you want to use water intentionally, have a 10 ounce glasses, glass of water about 20 or 30 minutes before you sit down and eat. But when we're eating, we're supposed to be chewing our food until it's mush in our mouth, because that's what our teeth are for. They're, it's for breaking down the food so that our body can get those nutrients broken down quickly, and then they can be distributed to our cells where they need to be doing their work. But what most people do, and this is where liquids interfere with the digestive process, is they take three or four bites and then take a mouthful of liquid and wash the food down before it's fully broken down. What this does is it means now that the stomach has got to create more acid to break those bigger pieces of food down. And this leads to acid reflux, heartburn, um, GERDs, things like that. So, you know, slow <laughs> well, down, chew your food. That's right? what I was going to say. So, so my grandmother knew what she was talking about when she said, chew your food. Uh, the uh, bottom, yeah. and the reason, again, the reason I bring this up is I, I want to make sure that we're talking about uh, actual science and actual studies that back up these, uh, these things that you're talking yeah. about uh, in, in the so, book. Yeah. So, Chris, there are 375 footnotes in my 100-page book, and I have documented absolutely everything so that people know that this information, which is so much of it is common sense, but that's gotten lost in this complicated, overwhelming world of wellness. The way you put it uh, in the book, and I think this is a a great way of kind of bottom lining it, uh, you describe food as a productivity tool. Yeah, exactly. You know, people spend so much time and money you know, trying to improve their health and wellness. They take a lot of supplements and they're buying, you know, foods that are are, are touted to do all sorts of different things for them. But what it all boils down to is that what we eat is the fuel. With the way food manufacturers are marketing to us, we've become carnivores that eat carbohydrates. So we're not eating enough of those whole fruits and vegetables and whole grains and fungi and nuts and seeds and animal protein has always been a part of the human diet, but we're eating a whole lot more animal protein than we have at any other time in history. So by, by simplifying things and eating less processed foods and more actual fruits and vegetables and whole foods that our great-grandparents ate, we can deliciously improve our wellness and actually manage a healthy weight and develop um, a better immune response. 
Kristen Cofield is founder of The Culinary Cure. Her new book is How Healthy People Eat. Do you have a uh, website? Well, you mentioned uh, you've got recipes and, and more info. Uh, I'm assuming about the book as well uh, on your webpage. Where do folks find that? TheCulinaryCure.com. I also have a really great free download called Healthy Habits 101. And it's 20 pages of, you know, how to get started on your wellness journey. It's got some recipes and it's just a great um, entry point for anybody who wants to do better and is ready to improve their wellness destiny. Kristen, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Chris. Eat well to be well. You may remember uh, late last year we spoke with author N.L. Holmes about her uh, two uh, book series, uh, the Lord Hanny Mysteries and the Empire at Twilight series. She is back now with another title to add to that collection of historical fiction. And N.L. Holmes, thanks for uh, being with us once again. Before we Thanks, before we get into the the new title, kind of uh, refresh uh, our memory, and for those who uh, may not be familiar, talk a little bit about these uh, series, uh, these ongoing series that you have, and kind of the uh, inspiration behind these. Well, uh, the inspiration is easy to say. I'm an archaeologist by training, and I've taught ancient history for a bunch of years, so these grew out of my interest in antiquity and finding real historical events that just sort of begged for fiction to be <laughs> wrapped around them to explain them. <laughs> so uh, there, the, the Lord Hani Mysteries is a, a series of cozy mysteries set in Egypt at the time of Akhenaten. Mm-hmm. And the Empire at Twilight series is set in the Hittite Empire, um, the, the best empire you've never heard of. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, this is in the 13th century BC, so this is... They're both in the bronze. Yeah, so we're so we're talking about uh, you know an era of like five six thousand years ago. Um, do you do you have this kind of era sort of all to yourself in the uh, uh, in the literary space? I don't I don't know of a whole lot of other uh, series that would tackle you know this period of history. Well, there are quite a few about Egypt, um, as I discovered once I started, you know, checking the market. But very, very few that are set in the Hittite Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, I can think of one that was some years old uh, about the uh, Emperor uh, Shupiluliuma, but that's he figures in one of the Hani books, but he's not a major character. And uh, this the protagonist of the new book is actually his great-grandson. Mm, okay. Um, and and uh, Lord Hani, from what I uh, have read, this is actually a real character, not real well-known, but a, a based on a real character? Yes. It's, um, that, because I start with historical events, and almost all the characters are real. He is um, a diplomat, an Egyptian diplomat, and he was mentioned... In a set of documents we call the Amarna Letters, which was like a diplomatic um, correspondence that was found in, the, in Akhenaten's capital city. So he's mentioned several times as being part of you know particular delegations or accomplishing this thing or that. So you know, I had kind of a basic framework for his his actions right there. Mm-hmm. And 
I, I know there's that old saying that that history tends to repeat itself, and a lot of what attracts people to historical fiction is kind of the relatability to you know things that happen way back when that we can tie into that which resonates today. You find that is uh, equally the case, even going back thousands of years. Absolutely, and perhaps sadly, <laughs> human nature is the same. Um, they had the same issues of conscience, the same family problems, uh, the same things to overcome in themselves. It's um, The clothes may have been different in the religion and what have you, but the, the human nature and its range of emotions was the same. And in fact, uh, in these series, uh, it is a kingdom that is kind of in flux, right? And again, here's something that we can sort of relate to in our modern day. Yeah, and particularly in the 14th century in Egypt, there was <clears throat> terrific social upheaval. Uh, the autocratic king had just jerked out the entire old religion and social structure and put a monotheistic system in its place, and it, it trashed the economy, it made people totally confused morally, and it made them very bitter, uh, cost a lot of jobs. And then on top of that, there was a plague. Hmm. So it's um, pretty familiar. Yeah, I was going to say, a, a lot of familiar themes there. So tell us a little bit about this uh, latest work. Uh, the uh, title of the new book is... It's The uh, the Sun, S-U-N, at Twilight. The Sun at Twilight. Uh, the, the, yes, the... the Hittite emperor was called the sun, so this is a, a reference to him, and but then also the twilight of his empire. Okay, uh, and it's essentially about a, a rather shy, repressed younger son who finds himself on the throne, and uh, his father had been a usurper, so he feels very insecure in his position and is afraid of offending the gods. So he feels he has to be, you know, the perfect king and apply all the virtues and everything. But then um, he inadvertently alienates his cousin with whom he had been lovers in their youth. And the cousin is so embittered that he actually rises against him and kicks him off the throne. So it's, it's based again on historical facts, but, they were so slight that, you know, it gives the novelist quite a lot of room. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about weaving your experience. You mentioned an archaeologist by trade, not necessarily a novelist. This is kind of a, a relatively new thing to you, although you are not unfamiliar with, uh, you know, trying new things and branching out into uh, uh, new career paths. But Talk about uh, weaving your experiences as an archaeologist into you know, these stories, combining this with your imagination, and it must be a fascinating process. It really is, and it's um, sometimes you start losing the line between historical fact and imagination, and that, that's actually why I started writing under a pen name. So, you know, I'm, I'm two different people, <laughs> that's what, but... Uh, it, certainly as an archaeologist, I'm constantly researching and exposed to these Bronze Age cultures. And uh, while I've never actually excavated in Egypt or Anatolia, I dealt with cultures that 
that interchanged things with them, so mm-hmm. they were familiar. And and is and, and is that part of of what um, you know kind of attracts you to? I, I would guess there would be some sort of natural extension of you know uh, uncovering these artifacts and looking at these things and wondering. You know, what is the history here? What, you know, uh, what is the story behind uh, all of this? And I would imagine for every archaeologist, your imagination in some respects does kind of run wild. I'm afraid so. And it's, um, well, it's inevitable because we have so few facts. In order to interpret it all, you have to kind of exercise your imagination and choose the most probable of many possibilities. Mm -hmm. Um, That's especially true in the, the periods I'm dealing with. So not, but I, I go ahead. no. I was going to say so. Not such a stretch to go from archaeologist to novelist, really. Not really, and this is funny. The whole idea of starting to write novels was uh, provoked by something in my, in my classroom. I was teaching a course on ancient empires, and we were studying a particular event in Syria, which was a vassal of, of the Hittites. And so I gave the students as an exercise, um, these very few ancient documents that we have are all we know about this event. Interpret that. Tell me what actually happened. And, uh, of course, you know, their imaginations had to go into to high gear. So right. the, the results were so diverse, I realized this really needs a novelist not a historiographer. <laughs> and uh, plus, I would imagine in, in some respects, it's a heck of a lot more fun. It certainly is. Yeah. <laughs> Although I try not to uh, not to contradict any known fact, any commonly assumed fact. Sure, I mean, I'll, I'll play around with things that no one's agreed on, but but I try to maintain my uh, my respect for truth. <laughs> N. L. Holmes uh, is uh, the author of The Sun at Twilight. Thanks very much for uh, taking the time this morning. Best of luck with the latest book. Thanks so much, Chris. Good to talk to you. With the Easter weekend right upon us here, you know, the images of bunnies and baby chicks are everywhere, and you might be tempted to bring home a bunny or a baby chick for your kids for Easter, um, but that may not necessarily be a good thing, because those cute little bunnies baby chicks will, and yeah, not too many weeks, grow up to be rabbits and chickens. And earlier this week, Natalie and Holly stopped by from the Hancock County Humane Society uh, to talk about what happens then and the things that people really don't think of when they uh, consider adopting one of those things uh, for Easter. Bunnies make great pets, but they are a lot more work than maybe what you uh, expect. Yes, that is 100% true. They are a lot of work. So if you don't have... Uh, I, I guess if you don't really plan to spend eight to ten years caring for this right. rabbit, yeah. then I would highly against advise against it. it. It's sort of the same thing, and we talk about it during the holiday season. Uh, you know that uh, quintessential idea of. Uh, you know, mom and dad giving a puppy to the kids when they come bounding down the, the stairs <laughs> yes. with the puppy under the Christmas tree. Not a not a great idea to do. And and we talk about how uh, that's probably not the best time to introduce uh, a new pet to the family. 
this is kind of the same thing. People kind of get caught up in the celebration yes, of the holidays, that's very true. and it's very true. You know, um, you could get them a stuffed bunny. Sure. And if you really do want to make a rabbit part of the commitment, you could still give a stuffed bunny, and like oh, we're gonna go shop around for yeah at this humane society or this humane society for potential small animals. Because you actually do have an influx. I'm told at, at shelters uh, nationwide, uh, you see an influx of. Of bunnies that are surrendered yes, that uh, in the weeks and correct. months uh, yep. following Easter. That so. is very, very true. And some of them aren't socialized very well, which makes it a little bit harder to adopt them out. So they don't get pet as much as they should. They don't get handled as much as they should. That's the thing. These are yes. social creatures. They really are. And they cannot just stay in their little cage. They mm-hmm. need out. They need exercise. They, your house needs bunny proof <laughs> because they will chew on things. They will get into things that they shouldn't. Right. And and they're quick. Um, they're they're really loving, friendly uh, animals. They do make great pets. Pets, but you you have to know what you're doing. You have to be prepared for uh, all of this. Yes, and I do want to say too that even though there is the influx at the humane societies um, for bunnies around this time of year, that that is still though the correct. Um, route to take is if you can't decide that you can't take care of it to take them to the Humane Society because a lot of people think that they can let them free. That's the other thing. Yeah, they're totally different than a wild wild rabbit and they Mm -hmm. will not survive out in the wild. Yeah, and as much as bunnies become an issue of concern during Easter, uh, chicks are probably even more so. Yes, I think because a lot of people get caught up in it being so cute, but rarely are anyone, unless you have a farm or have, are doing some type of like urban homesteading set up to have a chicken, you know? Yeah. So instead of getting caught up in the moment and the excitement, you got to have a play the tape out and see how it's going to Exactly. So So, uh, do you have uh, bunnies uh, uh, available for adoption? Is that one of the things? Yes. We currently have one rabbit available for adoption. And it could change again after Easter. We could right. get more. But yeah. right now we have one rabbit named Floppy. Go to the website and there's an application. Okay. And then they'll set up an appointment to come in and meet with those animals. Okay. Uh, again, uh, Natalie and Holly from earlier this week, the Hancock Humane Society, uh, who dropped by to talk about the uh, pitfalls of adopting uh, baby bunnies and chicks for Easter. And a lot of those end up abandoned after the holidays. So think twice uh, before you do that. You want to hear the uh, full conversation of the folks from the Hancock County Humane Society. Check out the Good Mornings Podcast Edition from this past Wednesday on our webpage, go to goodmornings.net. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. Sheriff's deputies in Southern Maryland trying to figure out what provoked a woman to slam into a Taco Bell restaurant the other day. <laughs> It's everybody in the restaurant just kind of going about and minding their own business. And all of a sudden, wham, somebody slams into the uh, restaurant with their uh, car. It uh, happened at Taco Bell in Charles County. Two female suspects were taken into custody after fleeing the scene. Authorities say it all started as an argument in the parking lot before the driver tried to run three people over and ended up crashing through the front door and into the restaurant. One person with a minor injury, but everybody is going to be okay. The crash remains under investigation. (laughs) Started with an argument in the parking lot. You tried. I don't know that I have ever been so mad that I think that 
trying to run someone over in my car is a good option. You know what I mean? That's how mad do you have to be? How big does that argument have to be? Uh, in uh, South Carolina, I'm not sure exactly where this is in uh, South Carolina. A uh, man caught walking naked on a residential street on Thursday told police that he was doing a walk of shame as penance for cheating on his wife. 41-year-old <laughs> Michael Boatman was spotted by a sheriff's deputy wearing nothing but a clear bag over his private parts. A clear bag over his private private parts, so not so private. Um... According to his arrest report, he was also uh, picked up with a uh, with a joint in his hand. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that figures into the story as well. Uh, Mr. Boatman, according to the cops, claimed he had cheated on his wife and was doing a walk of shame. He also uh, reportedly uh, made uh, biblical references while stating that he was willing to go to jail uh, for his transgressions. Although he did, at some point, cops say, try to escape arrest. He was wrestled to the ground and handcuffed after being placed in a squad, squad car. Mr. Boatman said that he would try to escape from jail and told a deputy that he should just shoot him. <laughs> Maybe the uh, marijuana uh, in his hand uh, had more to do with that story than what we thought. So, <laughs> Doing the walk of shame because he had cheated on his wife. <laughs> you know how annoying it is when you get a bug in your car buzzing around and you just can't get rid of it? Imagine having 15,000 of them buzzing around in your car. And not just any bugs, swarming bees. Uh, that is exactly what uh, happened to a New Mexico man. Surprise, he was greeted with. Apparently, he made a quick stop at a grocery store, forgot to roll up his windows, because in New Mexico, it's always warm in New Mexico. Um, so anyway, this past Sunday, he left the car window down while making a, about a 10-minute stop. He said he was only in the store for about 10 minutes. When he got back, he went about his business as usual, began to drive off. When he noticed something was wrong, he heard this buzzing noise. Uh, he uh, turned back and looked. And holy cow, there was a whole swarm of bees in the back of his car. Uh, fortunately, an off-duty firefighter, Jesse Johnson, who happens to be a uh, beekeeper uh, as a uh, hobby, was called to the scene, gathered up the swarm of insects in about a half hour, loaded them onto his truck to, to safely transport them to his beehive. As for where they came from... Mr. Johnson speculated that they were probably in a gutter system or a nearby neighborhood and uh, took to the car as temporary shelter. No one was injured from the bees other than a fellow firefighter firefighter uh, who got stung on the lip. And Mr. Johnson said we made fun of him later. Can you imagine 15,000 bees in your car? Just like 10 minutes. Moral of that story always roll up your windows that's that's the moral of that story right there and how about this in the broken news uh this from hamilton county new york the talavera hunting club kicked one of their members out recently uh irving 
Um, oh, no, I'm sorry. Irving Talavera is his name. What is the name of the hunting club? I don't know. But anyway, the Hamilton hunting club in Hamilton County, New York, kicked Irving Talavera out. Now, I don't know what the transgression was that led to him being booted out of the hunting club. But in response, uh, Mr. Talavera snuck to the uh, camp's um, headquarters, their, you know, their building, attached fireworks to the frame of the door of the hunting camp, and rigged them to spark when the door was open. Then he turned on the propane, the camp stove, inside. The idea was... When somebody opened the door, sparks would go out. The whole place would uh, blow up. Fortun- <coughs> uh, fortunately, two members of the club uh, changed. Uh, apparently, two members of the club changed the locks on the building, and that's when they noticed the smell of propane. Prompted one of them to go behind the building and turn off the propane tank, and then they waited for the gas to clear. When they opened the door, the fireworks did create a spark. No explosion, though. Uh, Mr. Talavera turned himself in last week on charges related to the incident. <coughs> Bottom line here, I'm reading the story and I'm thinking, golly, I wonder why they kicked him out of the hunting club. I I can't imagine why they wouldn't have wanted this guy in their hunting club. He seems like such a stable individual. <laughs> there you go. That is uh, today's broken news report. Excuse me, I'm getting all choked up here this morning. That is today's broken news report brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. You can help recognize outstanding teachers in Findlay and Hancock County. Nominate a current teacher who made a difference in your life for the Findlay Rotary Club's Golden Apple Awards. Place your nomination online at findlayrotary.org. Nomination deadline is April 2nd. Please promote the work, dedication, and achievements of all teachers by nominating an excellent teacher for the Golden Apple Awards. This message provided by WFIN. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives, and the relationship between the food we eat and our mood. Really interesting new survey finds that 65% of uh, people say that their mood can determine what they will eat on a given day. And uh, beyond that, uh, 65% also say that, uh, or I'm sorry, 66%, even more, uh, say that what they eat uh, depends on their mood. So it works kind of both ways here. This is a a survey conducted by uh, one poll for HelloFresh finds that, uh, What people eat when they are having a bad day, chocolate leads the list with 46%. Reach for chocolate, uh, followed by fast food and candy at 36%. So chocolate is first, what we reach for when we're having a bad day. Candy in general and fast food at 36%. Chips, 35%, just potato chips, chips, salty snacks. Uh, chocolate was also at 41% in what people eat on a good day, with uh, fruit and vegetables at 39% on those days. Interesting, when we're having a bad day, fruit and vegetables, nowhere to be found. <laughs> well, when we're having a good day, 
uh, then we will uh, reach for the, the healthy stuff. When asked specifically what food instantly puts you in a better mood, tacos top the list, 33%, followed uh, close behind by bacon and eggs and steak, which were both at 32%. So the foods that we eat uh, when we are having a good day and the foods that instantly put us in a better mood. Absolutely zero surprises in there. <laughs> that, that tacos, bacon, and steak will put us in a better mood. <laughs> no surprise there whatsoever. And you know, here's the uh, other thing. It's uh, knowing this is a good way of figuring out what kind of mood your coworkers or your spouse uh, it, it happens to be in. You can tell their mood by looking at what they're having for lunch or something like that. So helpful information there, I suppose, too. My wife, Kyra, is in the uh, studio with us this morning. What are your, what's the big comfort food for you? Do you reach, reach for when you are in a bad mood, you want to instantly uh, get put in, put yourself into a better mood? Ice cream. Oh, ice cream. Yeah. Yes. Okay. That one's a good one. <laughs> Do you choose ice cream? Yummy. <laughs> Absolutely. I didn't even think about that. Uh, that was probably, if, if that had been an option in the survey, that probably would have been uh, would have been number one, I would imagine. Hey, no. uh, it is time for another collection of recipes from Kyra's Kitchen. And with the Easter holiday coming up, we've got uh, some stuff that's uh, great for your Easter dinner. Yep. Uh, maybe a little bit different. If you wanted something uh, maybe a little different than the uh, traditional ham, ham for Easter, yeah. nothing wrong with that. No, no. Uh, I think we're doing a ham yep. for Easter, yes, right? Yes, we are. But... Uh, this might be something that you can yeah. do instead. instead. It is the Crock-Pot Brown Sugar Balsamic Glazed Pork Tenderloin. Yes. And again, here is another one of those recipes that's very easy, but it sounds like something you would order off the menu yes. at a five-star restaurant. Yes. You very know? fancy, but yeah. very easy. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we do it? So uh, two-pound uh, pork tenderloin roast. Um, one teaspoon ground basil, a half a teaspoon of salt, a quarter teaspoon of pepper, one tablespoon of minced garlic, a half a cup of water, a half a cup of brown sugar, a tablespoon of cornstarch, a quarter cup of balsamic vinegar, a quarter cup of water, and two tablespoons of soy sauce. So mix your seasonings, your basil, your salt, your pepper, and your garlic, rub over the tenderloin, Place a half a cup of water in the bottom of your slow cooker. Add your tenderloin to the slow cooker. Then cook on low for about six to eight hours. Um, if you want to cook it on high, two to three. Um, add, add an hour before the roast. An hour before the roast, mix the ingredients for the glaze um, in a small saucepan. That's your brown sugar, your cornstarch, your balsamic uh, vinegar, your water, your soy sauce. And specifically, you want to do that an hour before. Right, right because you want it to it stay thick. Oh, okay. Yeah, you right. want it to, to stay thick. I was thinking because it gave it a chance to for all those flavors to kind of mix, but right. I get it. Yeah. Stay thick. Okay, yeah, got the it. thickening. Okay. So heat over medium heat, stir until the mixture thickens, um, about four minutes or so, then brush that over the roast um, for um, two to three times. 
during the last hour of the cooking. Okay. And then serve with the remaining glaze on the side. So in other words, uh, even though this is uh, one that you do in your slow cooker, and we think of a slow cooker where you can put it in and just leave it go through the day and dinner's ready Mm -hmm. when you get home, you want to be able to time this so that you are there for the last, last hour, hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, to so yep. kind of time yep. that out a little bit yeah. uh with respect yeah. to that so okay. if it's on easter sunday you're probably still yeah, in the easter kitchen sunday. anyways well what i'm what i'm thinking is maybe that would this would be one that you would start yeah. uh if you were doing it just oh you know for a weeknight dinner yeah maybe instead of starting it in the morning yeah you started at lunch, lunch. yeah and then by the time you yeah. get home you're into that last hour you right. can take care of the final prep and yep. all of that so yeah. there you go the yes. uh, crock pot brown sugar balsamic glazed pork tenderloin that is a mouthful right there <laughs> now this uh is perfect for uh, easter yes it is the deviled eggs dip yes so a twist on the traditional deviled, deviled eggs. eggs yeah so you have uh 12 eggs hard boiled uh, a half a cup of mayonnaise four ounce cream cheese one tablespoon of mustard one tablespoon of sugar one tablespoon of white wine vinegar, and a teaspoon of dried minced onion, and a quarter teaspoon of paprika. Mm-hmm. So you're still using all your stuff, just right. a little bit different. So peel and separate your eggs, add the egg yolks to a food processor. Another good thing for this, sometimes when you peel your eggs, they don't turn out pretty. Some of them do, some of them don't. So the ones that don't turn out pretty, you can make in a dip. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay. All right. Add the egg whites to a medium bowl um, and then uh, add the egg yolks to a food processor. Then add about a quarter of the egg whites to the food processor with the egg yolks. Then finally chop the remaining eggs and set aside um, in a back bowl. Um, then in the food processor, um, Process your egg yolks and some of your egg whites. Add your mayonnaise, your mustard, your wine vinegar, uh, your cream cheese, your sugar, and your onion. Then to the food processor. Process all that until it's nice and smooth like a dip. Mm -hmm. Uh, Transfer the mixture to a bowl with the chopped egg whites. Season them with the salt. Transfer to a dip serving bowl. And then sprinkle with the paprika. And you're done. Yep. Serve with some veggies. I like that. You say you process it until it's creamy, smooth and creamy yes. like a dip. Yes. Well, not like a dip. It is a dip. Well, it is that a is, dip, yes. <laughs> But it's it different. It's yeah. not you know, that is, your normal dip. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, I I like deviled eggs, um, yeah. but I, I'm i not big on the actual deviled eggs. I think yeah. the uh, deviled dip would be uh, would yep. be perfect. Anyway, yep. uh, so that would be uh, good for uh, a fresh, tech on, uh, fresh take on your deviled eggs for Easter Sunday. And then for dessert, we have a no-bake, Easter chocolate pie. Yes, and this is really good. And uh, so you're using Rice Krispies. So you're kind of making a Rice Krispie treat pie crust. So three tablespoons of salted butter, seven ounces of mini marshmallows, four cups of Rice Krispie cereal, and a half a cup of M&M, excuse me, candies. Then for your filling, you have chocolate pie filling. So two pop boxes of your um, instant jello chocolate pudding uh, and four cups of 2% milk. And then your topping is two cups of whipped cream and some M&Ms sprinkled on top. Okay, so uh, first of all, before we get into the how of yeah. all of that, just looking at the ingredients list, obviously 
clearly there is uh, no calories. No, in this. no calories. So in this. this is a calorie all. free. Yeah. No, <laughs> no okay. bake Easter chocolate pie. How do we do uh-huh. it? <laughs> so spray a ten by two inch glass pie pan with uh, your nonstick spray, um, and set that aside in a bowl. Stir together your rice. Cereal, your M&M candies, your confetti sprinkles. If you want confetti sprinkles, I don't use those. I'm not a big confetti sprinkle person. And then set that aside in a large saucepan. Melt your butter, add your marshmallows, and stir with a rubber spatula until uh, combined. Remove from heat. Stir in your cereal until it's completely coated with the marshmallow mixture. And then press in the bottom and the sides of the prepared uh, pie dish like you would do with any pie crust mm-hmm. yeah. yep and then place in the fridge so then to make your chocolate filling an electric mixer add your milk and your instant uh, chocolate pudding mix mix on medium speed for about two minutes pour into your prepared rice cereal crust place in the fridge and chill for at least 48 hours overnight um, until your chocolate filling is completely set uh, before serving, top with your whipped cream and garnish with your M and M's. An M and M garnish. Yes, <laughs> garnish M&M with some M and M's. Hey, so no calories, no sugar yes. uh, whatsoever uh, in that. Man, you'd be uh, on a uh, sugar coma uh, with this one. <laughs> but uh, you've made this for our yes. uh, uh, yep. Easter Sunday, so yes. yep. it goes with. You've got all it's of your really candies good. covered right there yes. uh, for Easter. The no bake. And that's the best part. No bake. No. Nope. No bake. Uh, I mean, you've got enough to do for Easter. Mm-hmm. You don't need to be baking a pie. So nope. no bake Easter chocolate pie. Along with the deviled eggs dip and the crockpot brown sugar balsamic glazed pork tenderloin. Great uh, recipes for Easter or whenever. And we've got the recipes posted on our Facebook page, linked up, of course, at goodmornings.net. So uh, check that out. Happy Easter to you and yours, my wife, Kyra, uh, from Kyra's Kitchen this morning. Thanks very much for uh, dropping by. We appreciate it. You're welcome. And that will wrap up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for being with us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics we talk about each day on the show at our webpage, of course, and that is goodmornings.net. And so until Monday morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day, a great weekend, a happy Easter, and we'll catch you back here next week. 